Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Happy 2023! Hope you and your family enjoyed happy and healthy holidays. I had a great holiday season. All my kids came home for Christmas and we really enjoyed our time together. And now I'm refreshed and ready to dig into whatever 2023 has to offer. And I hope you all are too. We're going to start off this year with a conversation with my dear friend, who's also a good friend of Crown Control Parenting, David Coleman. David is the CEO of the College Board, a not-for-profit organization focused on connecting students to college success through an assortment of programs, the most familiar ones being its testing services, including the PSAT, SAT, and AP tests. David was my first guest in 2021, and we had a great conversation which touched on a lot of topics, including math phobia, SAT prep, and college admissions. That episode was a fan favorite, and I know why. David is such a thoughtful and insightful guest with lots of interesting things to say. This time, we just dove right in and started talking about leadership, how to help students become happier and less stressed learners, new and important college board developments, and so much more. In our wide-ranging conversation, we covered lots of topics helpful for parents of students of all ages to hear. So glad you've joined me for this talk with David, a timely and great way to start off the new year. A lot of leadership is about timing, which is so hard to talk about because it means that reading a lot of management books and a lot of generalities don't help you so much. Right. Because if you don't have that judgment as to the right time to do something, you're not a leader, you're a fool. You know what I mean? You You rush in at the wrong moment where the same idea at a different moment is powerful. So in the moment, do you think that anybody in the moment, do they realize that this is what they are doing or is it just more organic because they've done this so many other times before and this time they just happen to be right? When we say that, that, that Lincoln wrote the Gettysburg Address on the train on the way there and it seems like there are these geniuses among us who suddenly are great. But you know, I learned in his top hat, he kept sentences. He was constantly fashioning and looking for powerful sentences, think Twitter. (laughs) And (laughs) so when the moment came to assemble them, he had had years of practice. So the Gettysburg Address is not a sudden, but a long practiced compilation. Or when King is suddenly turned to in the Washington Monument and said, tell them about the dream, Martin. And he explodes into one of the most famous oratorical Mm -hmm. performances. (laughs) At first, it's like, how is that even possible? Mm-hmm. unless you know that he's constantly practicing. You know, that, David, is absolutely right. And it strikes me that that is a way that children should be taught about where greatness comes from. Because yes. in this Twitter, TikTok, 30 seconds max world, instant celebrity, instant following, there's a real temptation to think that leaders or influential people or people that you want to be are instantaneously formed. And they're very quickly formed. And, you know, it goes back to that concept, which really made a difference for me to hear about the 10,000 hours that, yes. you know, it, it takes even the people that seem to be able to do things exactly. flawlessly and off the top of their head. They've practiced. They have made a lot of mistakes. They have learned from their mistakes. I love the, the image of Lincoln with the sentences in his hat because it does evoke the modern day Twitter. It, it does relate to our desire to take snippets of things and put them together. But the fact that he is thinking a lot, a lot of different times things come to him, he's patient, he just 
keep trying. I, I guess greatness is the ability to step away from perfectionism and move towards. I love what you're saying. I, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I think it's exactly that. I think Aristotle was the great philosopher who described perfection as the enemy of excellence mm -hmm. and instead embraces a happy life as one that pursues excellence, which mm -hmm. is short of being perfect. And mm -hmm. even in the story of creation, God rests after each day and finally on the seventh day, and he says it is good and very good, but he never says it's perfect and it obviously isn't. <laughs> And, and that should be a lesson to all of us who want to create anything. <laughs> I think some great people strive, sadly, for perfection, and they're kind of unhappy the whole time. And then I really honor and try to, you know, kind of emulate the happy warrior, the person who is happy with what is good enough, and for mm -hmm. them, for the moment, even as they strive to make it better. I do think it's hard to want to be great and also be happy at the same time and be grateful for what you have. It's a hard lesson, though, because... If you are striving for greatness in anything, part of what motivates you is the feeling like once exactly. you get there, it's going to make you feel better and you're going to be happy with exactly. it. Exactly. You can exactly. and and I think it's the saddest person who's striving for greatness that has no ability to be proud of their journey. They're exactly. Just, exactly. Yeah. One of the themes that I've been thinking a lot about in my work at the college board is that happiness should not be postponed in high school for the future. Mm, we must stop that. sacrificing the happiness of today for our adolescents. It's the worst thing we could do for them, for them to grow up healthy and happy. Adolescence should be a time of extravagant joy in the newfound powers of the mind and body. Yes. And <laughs> I love that. And I love that you're saying that because you are in charge of the organization, which arguably, no disrespect because you do wonderful work, but you have a product which has been known to create angst in the high no school question. experience. So, so how do you at the college board, I mean, how do you meld these two concepts? Like be happy, but try to do as best as you can on this exam that will actually impact what happens to you in the future, potentially. Do you mind if I start with advanced placement and then start oh, with- Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because advanced placement courses occupy much more time in a high school student's mm -hmm. life. And so mm -hmm. my belief leading the college board may be strange is that more AP is not always a good thing. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have research that if over the course of your entire high school career, let's say one in 10th grade, two courses in junior and senior year, that you do take five AP courses, you're more likely to complete college on time. You have a sense of college level work, but research does not show that more is better. Yet so many young people feel the anxiety to take as many AP courses as they can. And so, and we give them this advice, guidance counselor, you know, school counselors can, people who visit from colleges can say this phrase that seems okay, but it's actually toxic. They say, take as many rigorous courses as possible. Right. This is actually poison to a striver's soul. So what we're doing about it is the following. The college board has decided to eliminate all college board awards for taking more than five AP courses. We've changed ah. every award we give. Furthermore, we made a call to every admissions officer to look at no more than five AP courses as evidence of rigorous coursework. Mm. In other words, kids may have very good reasons for taking more than five AP courses, but they should do it because they want to or they find them interesting not to get into college. We have got to stop the madness. Organizations like mine have got to slow things down and stop rewarding or encouraging the excessive intensity that leads kids into the kind of anxiety we're talking about. So that would be an example in advanced placement of trying to directly take on what you're talking about. So that, David, that is incredible. And, and I'm really glad to hear that. Let me ask you, practically speaking, and, and this may be naivete on my part, 
when the College Board says to colleges, do not look at more than five as evidence of rigorous academic work, do the colleges listen? I mean, do well, you have a it, confidence it, that they do? It's very interesting. The president of Kofi, who I admire to a fault, uh, who used to be the dean of admissions at Princeton, she's very able, Jenna Rapley, told me how much she welcomed it. Many of the admissions officers who, I'm, who are on our board and very close to us were very moved by this. It's also very important to equity because many students attend high schools where they, whatever their strength, they don't have more than five AP courses they take. So it's very important not to create these arms races in situations where there's very unequal access. So I think actually there could be a new consensus. And I think actually the saddest thing about college admissions is how much young people are straining to do that doesn't help them. In other words, let me put it to a, in a different area. Mm-hmm. The common application for college now has 15 or 10 to 15 spaces for your extracurricular activities. I think there should only be three. Because guess what? Like, do your schoolwork, do a couple of things outside of it that show what you're devoted to and passionate about. And again, you can do more, but not to get into college. And, and, and let's be honest with one another. What college has time or space to look lovingly at your 10th activity? <laughs> so I worry that our young people are busy rather than excellent. Mm-hmm. exhausted rather than than finding what they love. And so I'm trying to yield a culture in everything we do that young people can do fewer things, enjoy them, devote themselves to them, and then have extra time to hang out, to do more of what they love. And, and in AP, that means not only limiting, trying to limit, trying to say you don't need to take more than five, but we're revising AP courses to include project-based work. We're making mm-hmm. AP courses that are more relevant to what students care about. It turns out that a lot of students want to study things like business, and we don't offer that. That A lot of students want to be nurses, and we're making an offering for them. We're offering a course, as you know, in AP African-American studies, because students from all backgrounds are fascinated by that. In other words, why not make what fascinates students right now the ticket to their future, rather than saying, wait for college, or, or make today a grind? Can we redesign what we do to embrace what fascinates young people? trying to make courses where it's not just about the end of your AP test, but it's a project they do where they choose the topic. They build an app in a computer science course that fascinates them. It also advances their future, but it also advances their now. It makes their now more intense. Ah, I I really like that. And I I see, you know, back in the day and even here more recently, AP courses were what the brightest of the bright students took to prove their how bright they really were so that colleges could look at their four or their five and check exactly right. that box. I mean, and in theory, perhaps it would get you out of some classes in college, but having had children that took all those AP tests, it, it doesn't do as much. It depends on where you go and, and, and what the levels are. So, But what I love is that you're taking the concept of advanced placement and redefining the advanced to, exactly. to, to, to be more the concept of broadening the placement. I mean, giving students opportunities to learn about things that they might not learn about in their classroom through their regular curriculum. It's sort of, it's funny, you could rename it. It's sort of alternative thinking or. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or, or what advanced placement might mean at its best. But, but let's take one example. We have a course called seminar, AP seminar, and it was designed years ago. You, you first have a seminar environment where you do research projects. The first of which you choose as a small team to work on. And then another one, a challenge that's given to you, like, and you get several sources and and you choose then which ones you want to explore. So we provide it for 11th and 12th graders, seminar in 11th grade and a capstone research project in 12th grade as a course for super advanced kids, Carol. 
for the best of kids to do even more, do in-depth work like they do at some of the elite independent schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. K-12, the field, public high schools, put it in grade 10 instead, the seminar course, and they put it in 10th grade English for ordinary kids, right? Mm -hmm. And what they found is ordinary kids rose to it. They loved it. They were otherwise bored by high school, but mm -hmm. found in a seminar environment they could actually explore what they're interested in. Compared to the typical AP passing rate, there's an 84% passing rate for seminar. Wow. There's the lowest gap between black and white students. So a wider set of students succeed. But as interesting, they go on to do better at every future humanities course. In other mm -hmm. words, so advanced placement, rather than being the reserve of the sum, what mm -hmm. if the best stuff in education were not just for the best to further distinguish themselves, mm -hmm. but what mm -hmm. could engage a much broader set of kids? Why are mm -hmm. we holding it for some? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's and the question. You are, and you're answering that question with your AP Computer Science Principles course, exactly. because I love talking about this one, because there you recognize that for some students, exposure to all the different principles of computer science was critical to, to becoming good. Just the access to the information was important, an important first step to determining whether they had an interest in pursuing it. So you make this incredible course that broadens the access to learning and you have great statistics on how kids sort of who were not viewing themselves as computer scientists or as, as having any kind of uh, skill set in this area are actually doing well in this course. And it's and I know that your podcast is a breakthrough in embracing the black community in particular and that around. So let me tell you like the truth of this data for 30 years. Until 2016, we gave a course called AP Computer Science. And in that course for that whole 30-year period, which is pretty recent, there are 80% young men, 20% young women, first off. Mm -hmm. Those young men were overwhelmingly white and Asian young men. So mm -hmm. much so that in 2010, in 14 states in this union, not a single Black person or Latino person took the advanced CS exam. And you see this data again, Carol, when you look at Google's hiring numbers or all these numbers and you're like, where are the black engineers? Well, I can tell you why they're not there because they're not in AP. If mm -hmm. they're not in AP, that's a problem. It doesn't mean they have to take AP to do it, but it means if, if kids in high school are not beginning to develop the fascination. So we could either live with that computer science pipeline as it stood, or when no one is coming to your party, you better change the invitation. And mm -hmm. so we instead said to young people, as you're saying, would you like to build an app? Would you like to study computer science principles? And would you like to study data to solve a problem of your own choosing? We didn't say study the advanced grammar of a foreign language you're not interested in called Java. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we open up this course and now tens of thousands of black and Latino students are taking it. They mm -hmm. are three times more likely to major in computer science when they take it. There's a 65% growth in students of color as well as young women pursuing the field. And what's fascinating, Carol, is admissions officers couldn't see them before. So the dean of admissions at, at Case Western said to us, I'm in awe of how many women of color I'm thinking of now admitting to the program. So we say casually when we see the data, you know, the 1% at Google, maybe enough black students aren't interested in computer science. Oh, no, it is the invitation that needs to change. And suddenly there's an outpouring. Can I give you an analogy that we're now working mm -hmm. on? The mm -hmm. field of economics is notoriously not diverse. And economics matters because mm -hmm. if black people are not at the table of economics, how are they going to share power in our society? Because economics is the science of scarcity. It's the science of how you distribute wealth and goods. Mm -hmm. And there are far too few black economists in this life. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our AP enrollments, look at it again, 5%, not okay. And what I've learned is I will never change that number easily. But what I can do is introduce a new course, AP Business Principles, because guess what? tons of African-Americans, rural students, a wide range of students are dying to study business. 
Mm-hmm. So why not make that course? And then the economics teachers, AP economics teachers are dying to teach it because they know they'll take those students and they'll take some of them to economics with them. So mm-hmm. AP is no longer one course, but a pathway with a mentor. And I just am so excited about taking on these inequities by building better pipelines that are more open at the beginning. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to say, as I listen to you, what you are not doing under any circumstance is dumbing down any course. And I know that with respect to this new African-American studies program, you've been ridiculously accused of that, among other things with respect to that program. But it it is not that. It, It is you are opening a doorway to the study that just invites, to your point exactly, it invites more people in. The principles remain the same. The teaching of them remains the same. You're not changing the way that things are taught. The the principles of the formulae are the formulae, but you have to learn it. And people don't finish the course without a thorough understanding of what they need to know. And as you said, then they go on to study it in colleges where- The data are overwhelming. These students in computer science principles are going on to computer science. Let me put you very simply in a very funny way. Let's just think about the kids you know. What's the difference between an adolescent who cares about something in their performance versus one who doesn't? (laughs) It's everything. Every test assumes the kid is trying, but Mm -hmm. often adolescents are not. They're bored silly. Like, can we just tell the truth? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The crucial (laughs) first step, if we want to see what young people can do, is engaging them in what fascinates them. Because only then can we even begin to see what they're capable of. So Mm -hmm. I believe the error the College Board has made to date is to give challenges to young people without thinking nearly hard enough about where they are and what they want to show and opening our hand and designing challenges that, as you say, turn them on, light Mm -hmm. them up, spark them. And then, of course, they can master the content. But you know that about every adolescent you've met. When they're into something, they're unstoppable. And so that's why you can maintain rigor, because rigor is secondary when the passion and interest are there. Absolutely. And David, this this is the absolute right time for this kind of thinking, because as we all know, and everyone talked about, students now, after these two years of isolation exactly. and of this pandemic slide and of just the inability to be in the comfort of their classroom and just learn without worrying about anything else, they're so vulnerable and they need they need all of the shoring up that they can get. And it doesn't mean that their brains are mushy. It doesn't mean that, it just means that they need to be able to see themselves as students who can learn. And they've kind of had to step away from that vision for, the with the exception of the most driven, who is going to be fine, whatever they're doing. Exactly and even, right. but, the, but it's not, the most driven will get there without any assistance, but for the rest of 90% of the rest of the student body, they've taken a hit psychologically. And so for you to say, let us figure out a way to make sure you're learning because that's what we're here for. And that's really important, but let's figure out a way to make sure you learn in an environment that isn't so fraught with what you are doing with, with, with the result, with the grade, with the answer, with the, with evidence that you are learning it it really just tries to get you to the mastery. That's really good. And it's interesting because my feeling is basically after COVID, we can't invite high school students back to the experiences they disconnected from in the first place. Right. If we're going to reconnect the disconnected, if we're going to, because the thing we have to admit is for many, many students, they're already been disconnected for a while in high school. There's that top group you're talking about who either out of fear or desire strives, Mm -hmm. but there's a vast middle And even within that top group, 
people who are doing, going through the motions, so, but we have not yet allowed them to show what they're like when they're really interested. And mm-hmm. so when you were talking about the really brightest students and the geniuses, we talked a little bit of the, earlier in our discussion about greatness. You see, mm-hmm. the open-ended project work also allows greatness to shine. Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you a funny thing. If you're really great, a five on a test is pretty perfunctory. It's, <laughs> it's nice, but it's not what you strive for. Mm-hmm. A computer mm-hmm. science person wants to build something. They want to solve a problem. They want to show you the impact of what they have done. So I feel these projects both allow a wider range of students to get in. And they let those, you know, they, they create new stars. And they allow them to shine in different ways than a number, which fascinates me. And I think fascinates young people much more. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I guess I think that, and I know this sounds strange, that the core to the college board being a decent, helpful institution is deeply worrying, wondering about what fascinates young people and giving them as many chances as possible to show what interests them and what ter- and shows their best work so that high school is more lively for them. It's really important, David, to understand this version, this vision of the college board, because I think for many parents and many students, College board is the gatekeeper to college. And what you are saying now, which is really important for everyone to hear, is that it's certainly it administers a test, which is part of the admissions process. Yeah. But it more importantly, it, it is the opening, it's it's the archway with no gates <laughs> yeah. to learning and to building student bodies that are happy to learn and eager to learn and giving them opportunities to learn. Let, let me just ask you a quick technical question on some of the APs that you've talked about. The I know that the African-American AP is still in, in development, but yeah. when that one comes out and, and the computer yeah. science principles, how, if, if a student school does not now have access to that, I mean, who is it that determines whether these courses are taught? This, Carol, will be my biggest work of the next several years, because I think Equity demands that these open, most open courses like the computer science principles course, I think is the example of a course that could fascinate the widest range of students or that AP seminar course in 10th grade, often in 10th grade English class. We have got to change the way AP is done where there's not like one class that some small set of kids can, we have got it. And and, and so we're looking to partner with school districts and others that are willing to think about access in a very different way. Because I think the most important thing is that earlier in high school, call it 10th grade, you enter a course like that and you get turned on. When you ask what is the gate to college for most young people, and we'll get to the SAT and I'll talk about that night. And I understand, and and you'll be intrigued, I think, by some of the changes we're bringing to it. But, But I think the real gate is how many kids aren't really in the game. How many kids have not yet found something in high school that brings out their best work? The Mm -hmm. gate is a combination of how dull high school is and how disinterested they are. But if that begins to open up, if they find something that they can devote themselves to outside of class, inside of class, the road to college becomes a lot easier Mm -hmm. because now they're moving. They've got a plan. They've got a story. They've got something they're pursuing. They own their future. I think that's the greatest wall. People, you know, the test is one kind of wall, and we can talk about the SAT in a minute, but I think the college board must confront these walls of, of opportunity. In other words, you're a normal kid. Do you ever get a chance at these kind of classes or do you mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mm-hmm. got that chance, do you really have a shot to shine? Do you really? There are a million kids taking pre-calculus today. I'll give you a funny example, but we only offer AP calculus. But guess what? If you didn't take a strong algebra course in eighth grade, you have no chance of winding up in AP, maybe a 10% chance at best of making it to AP pre-calculus. So through no fault of your own, 
despite your talents in math, you'll never be seen. But this year we're introducing AP pre-calculus because we want to give every kid, including those kids, a chance to be seen for their work. And that requires the college board to think differently mm-hmm. about what we're doing. Wow. No, that's, that's good stuff. That's really, it's, it's important. And as I said before, it's very timely because yeah. we can't keep driving. <laughs> we, we, the children are not in a position to be driven as they have been. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So yeah, let's talk about that old SAT. Yeah. <laughs> the beloved SAT. Yeah. Now, some 75% of, well, first of all, in keeping with your interest in not uh, in, in in releasing some of the anxiety yeah. around the test. I know yeah. that early on you ended the SAT subject tests and that yeah. you discontinued the optional essay yeah. and then the pandemic hits and colleges, because of the difficulty in administering them, colleges say, okay, we don't have to, don't worry about trying to take the test. Yeah. So as a result, now in 2022, some 75% bachelor degree giving colleges won't require it for next year. Right. So let me ask you this. Has the standardized test, and this is not just SAT affected, it's ATT, any all standardized yep. test. Has that has the standardized test train left the station permanently? <laughs> yeah. Or- let, me, let me give you my sense of it. Yeah. You know, first off, I do think it's worth lingering over that for someone who seems to head an assessment organization, as I seem to do, I've gotten rid of more tests than most people get, right? <laughs> because I, I don't think we need more tests. I think we need more opportunities. I'll just be very blunt with you. Mm-hmm. Assessment should be brief and productive, but most important is what it invites from you. Does it allow you to strive and grow? And and that's what I think about AP and the role of assessment in AP, as you can tell. Now let's take the SAT as a notion. I just want to tell you a little bit about the changes we're bringing the digital SAT. My quick answer to your question is, you know, during the pandemic, we recommended, as you may have heard, that colleges are flexible, of course, Mm -hmm. and that's staying with us. And so in a way, we can all take a deep breath here, Carol, like, guess what? The SAT, you can go to a college of any level. So while it may only be 75% of colleges, there are a ton of the most elite colleges, there are a ton of less selective, there are a ton of middle select, whatever your flavor, there are colleges where the SAT is optional. Mm -hmm. So take a breath. We can now talk about it in calmer tones. It's not a you must pass go, it just isn't. So now let's think about a healthy relationship to it rather than one of fear. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not good at that, show your strength somewhere else. So if we step back from it, After the pandemic, when we had a real fall in taking, already 1.7 million kids are come back to take the exam in the class of 2022. Hmm. So numbers are rebounding because kids want to take that shot. Mm -hmm. So my first decision when we did the digital SAT, it may make you laugh, was whether to just get rid of it entirely. I mean, why not, right? I got rid of other Mm -hmm. stuff, right? Right? In other words, (laughs) I I am willing to do it. And and, and what happened is parents and young people actually want the option Mm -hmm. to send their scores. And that's true, by the way, we looked at the data from all backgrounds and all races. And that's because if you look at 1.3 members of kid, of 1.3 million kids in our testing class this year, mm-hmm. their scores confirm or strengthen their grades. Mm-hmm. And of those 1.3 million, 250 or so are from small and rural communities where high schools are much less known. And 400,000 of them are Black and Latino. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to be a little careful when we make broad statements about these instruments that for a wide body of young people, they can confirm or further advance what their mm-hmm. transcript shows. So it's an mm-hmm. option of some value for people, but that's all it is. Mm-hmm. So if you were designing such a test, how would you, Carol, 
try to deal with the anxiety it causes in young people. What if you took them at their word? So we did. So I'll tell you what we heard from young people about the, about the current SAT. They said it was both a marathon and a sprint, <laughs> both too long. Does that make sense? And too rushed. And so the digital SAT, which most people may not know yet, is two hours, closer to two hours rather than three. It's an hour shorter. But the really cool thing is there's 60% more time per question. Wow. Okay. So just to give you a sense, compared to any other college entrance exam, that's like getting an accommodation of time mm-hmm. and a half that people mm-hmm. fight for, you know, mm-hmm. my kid, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have much more time per question because our design was, and we looked at all the data and we saw any subgroup of kids feeling rushed. We kept widening and creating more time because our thought was we have to commit to a test where kids can take a breath and do their best work because the idea of quick being smart was never a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first thing that we changed the digital SAT was to change time because that stresses kids out. And we now have kids, if now taken the new exam, and 80% of them find it less stressful. So I, I ask you, just look at it. It's, it we, our, our app is live. It's called Blue Book. And you can take the new digital SAT, if you have a student account, an actual one, get an actual score, wow. and see what it's like. And um, to give you a different example, do you remember from your own childhood, as all the people listening to this podcast may, those long reading passages followed by like 10 or 11 questions? Oh, of course. Of course, right? It's the way reading is tested from sixth grade onwards, whether it's the GRE mm-hmm. or the SAT, it's all the same. What's the problem with that from an anxiety? Let's look at the, how that stresses people out. Have you ever found yourself drowning when you began reading the thing, you didn't quite understand it, you begin to panic. You're like, oh my God. And then you start looking at the questions and then you're more confused because you're in the, in the digital SAT, we've changed it entirely. There are short, rich passages followed by a single question. Mm. So if you find yourself momentarily disoriented or you can't crack it, you just skip to the next one and you skip one question, not 11. Mm. This has evoked a huge response to the English language learner community that we're studying Mm-hmm. 75% of it prefer it to the paper passages. Mm. And we think the benefits may be even greater for dyslexic students, you know, because it's less tax on working memory to hold the smaller, and it measures reading as reliably. Mm. Incredible. Now, is the digital SAT is taken the same way? Is it do you, do people all file into a classroom and then are there? Yeah. Can I tell you what's? Yeah. Yeah. How does it work? The way it works, which is kind of super cool, is if we had made the old SAT digital, it would have just made the digital divide worse and not solve any problems. The new digital SAT, ready for this? Whatever device you have, whether it's your whether it's your laptop or whether it's a tablet, Carol takes an exam that's comparable to my exam to David's, but they're different. The questions are different. Every student oh. in the classroom is unique. Looking across doesn't matter. What it cuts that down means, on cheating. <laughs> it cuts down on cheating. Transforms security. The exam mm-hmm. is far more secure. It also means not everyone has to do it at the exact same moment. It ends the military anxiety, you know, like we're all going to take a break at the exact same breath and we're all, none of that is necessary anymore. And, and why is that? Because, because you take you're it- taking your own form. We're no longer trying to compare how David and Carol, who both started at 915 on the same exact test, did. Uh, you're, if you start your exam at 920 and my start mine at 915, we both have two hours roughly to, mm-hmm. to complete it. But it doesn't matter that we're not starting at the same time because it's a different form of the exam. And so how is it? proctored or does it just go all, cut off at the end of two hours or basically there's much more fluidity what i mean is people start we call it simultaneous what i mean by that is <laughs> people start roughly at the same time they take breaks mm-hmm. roughly at the same time but there's so much less pressure and god forbid you have a glitch that day so for example 60 percent of kids now take the sat during the school week 
And it's all the kids in the school taking it. And the way it used to be, Carol, which is very important for access because many of the best kids don't even think to come on a Saturday. It's much more democratic if each kid takes a try. We found huge results from that. It's the best thing we ever did was to give it during the school day. But what we now have to say to schools is you can give it on these three days <laughs> and God forbid there's a snow day. <laughs> but now we're saying to them, give it any time during this month, whenever you want. Mm. And if a kid has a problem one day, they can take it the next day. And by the way, the way we've designed the app, which is kind of cool, is if your computer runs out of bandwidth or there's an interruption, you can still keep going and it saves everything. Wow. It reconnects it. We've designed everything to, in the mind of what we all learned from COVID, which is technology breaks all the time <laughs> and bandwidth, <laughs> to make it durable. And so all we're trying to do with the SAT is lower the temperature, make mm -hmm. it briefer, make it less. And uh, I can't wait for just more kids to try it because the proof's in the pudding mm -hmm. and we're hearing wonderful things from them. And also the people who administer it who find it much less of a difficulty to do. So I'm a junior and I'm going to take the SAT in my school yeah. in yeah. anywhere USA. Am I now at this point probably going to take the paper one until the school learns about this digital one? Or is We're making a full transition to the digital exam. So it's kind of once ah. we put the digital exam in place in the United States, all paper testing, except for those who need that accommodation, will cease. And so that will begin. It begins internationally the spring of next year in the spring of 2023. Mm -hmm. So it begins internationally, it launches internationally, where the security benefits are particularly important because when we have to cancel a country's course, it's terrible for opportunity, et cetera. So that's great. Then the PSAT will launch first in the United States next fall, and then it will be fully the digital SAT in spring of 2020. Wow. So you can get rid of those number two pencils. <laughs> They're gone for good. It's over. An era wow. is over. Breaking news. This yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> this is really great. Wow. David, you know, I could just talk to you forever. And I love the way that we have moved through this conversation. Yeah. Let me just talk about the elephant in the room right before we go. By the time this podcast airs, we will not have a resolution of the uh, Supreme Court's consideration of race conscious admissions. So the arguments are being heard. They'll, they'll be in deliberation for a while. Let us just, we, we know we're reading anything about it, anything about the arguments, anything about the, the makeup of the current court. It is not coming going out too far on a limb to say that we are potentially and perhaps even probably looking at an end to race-based admissions or race-conscious race -conscious admissions, or, or at least a change in race-conscious admissions. So I, I am not always a fan, I'm an optimist forever, but I'm going to put my pessimist hat on for just a minute and say, okay, we have a ruling that says missions offices have to change. Where do we go from here? I'm going to give a very specific suggestion. One reason I love being with you is I love what you have built. And I mean this with all honor and seriousness. The community of Black parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles who assemble for your podcast is a sacred thing. And so I just want to let you know about one initiative we have at going on at the College Board called Real Talk. This is an initiative I think we learned from you where real talk, go to big future slash real talk. These are conversations by and for black folk about making it to higher education. It's called real talk because it's as honest as possible where black admissions officers and black school leaders and black school counselors are talking with black young people. 180,000 have participated. We will keep that going every step of this way because this is a deep conversation, Carol. This is not the stuff of a moment. And I want you to know the college board will do everything in its power to sustain that conversation. My brief advice for parents and others who are really feeling this, 
we're doing everything we can to expand our recognition programs to create ways your young people can be seen. We used to, for example, only have from the PSAT, a recognition program for Hispanic students that is now spread to African-American students, to a wider range of students. But I will basically tell you this, take the options you have. Don't let anyone tell your young people that they shouldn't even try at the SAT. I promise you, I don't need the money. I'm really saying this for the love of God, because, and by the way, anyone low income gets a full fee waiver on the SAT. I just want to make this all very clear or on the AP, mm-hmm. a full fee waiver. So no, but I'm really saying this because I care about it. It's really important not to get, not to get freaked out at a moment like this and know that a young person who practices for free and does well can still distinguish themselves using these instruments or others. Please search for AP opportunities and others where they can show themselves and show up and maybe do a project that helps distinguish them and they get excited about the cultivation of young people to keep trying and not be discouraged and keep raising their hand. It's so important now that the Black community lean into that despite whatever cruelties it may face, which it is sadly used to in this life. But we will create situations where people can organize and have conversations, where we can keep abreast of the ongoing situation, where we can provide ongoing tips and provide every resource we can as as the community navigates these decisions. But my quick impulse is please remember your young people, the young people in your care cannot be seen unless they raise their hand and show themselves and take every chance. And that's going to be all the more important in the world to come, that they have many ways of being seen. David, I can't think of a better way, a better phrase and a better way to end this amazing conversation. As always, it is a delight to speak with you. I am so happy you're here and I'm so happy that our parents and and listeners get to hear you as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your time as well. Take care. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.